Hey folks, welcome back. This is Elliot with the Poor Girls Almanac, and this is new content in a new mini series in a new yard. No, my my yard's the same. Is there anything else that's new? Uh, my beard's still the same. You're so now look nice today. Looks very Thank nice. You. Had to go to the office. So. Mine's turning very gray. Yeah, it happens. Very. You very find gray. one, and then you find ten. It's bad. But. So. You can find us on Spotify and on iTunes and wherever you get your podcasts, as well as occasionally in the alley of your local bar, and sometimes even stealing weeds from your front yard. And of course, you can find us on Patreon if you're enjoying what we're... I think I'm so funny. If you're enjoying what we're doing here, and uh, you'd like to help us cover the cost of hosting the podcast, which we do enjoy doing so very much. We don't explicitly offer any of our traditional content focused on the specific goals of this podcast to our Patreons in terms of limited access or anything like that right now. Knowledge is for everyone, but we have started up a Patreon-only miniseries called The Prologues, during which we like to discuss uh, some critiques in various subject matters. We talk about those things not only from an intersectional lens, but also within the context of this podcast, Societal Collapse and Reconstruction. The, what did we do tonight? The Navajo Sheep Reduction uh, Shepherds, the Navajo yeah. Sheep Reduction Plan, and the Navajo Shepherds who got hosed by the U.S. government. It was actually pretty cool. Surprise. It was pretty fun. Kind of depressing, but fun. Yeah, not and fun for them. There was a lot of talk about hair, like perfect hair. Yeah, not mine. Again. Anyway, here's a taste of it if you want to check it out. So, he, you know, he very much sounds on the surface, at least, like he cared genuinely about um indigenous rights and their ability to keep their culture and identity uh which sounds good right yeah it does sound good sounds like a good guy yeah well despite this a few years later in the late mid to late 1930s the indian rights association denounced collier as a dictator and accused him of a near reign of terror on the navajo reservations i guess it didn't work out so well and i do want to talk a little bit about this and if you're interested and are willing to donate $2, it's up on our Patreon. We've also released one episode that was asked by popular demand for a public consumption, so that's a good place to check it out and see if you'd like to hear more. Shoutouts to our patrons. Sam G, as always, Popsicable, Aaron G, Aaron H, Lucas G, Liz C, Yo Tony B, what's up? John R, Camille P, Hadley P, Eric V, the one and only Matt C, Austin C, Ember L, MJ Wallace, Nathan M, Daniel T, Jerbear205, what's up, man? Ash L, Wes A, Nunya Business, Teflon Billy, and Jay, thank you all for your support. I can't believe we just shouted out all those people. I actually it's wild. I lost count. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, so yeah, we'll do that every time. These episodes are going to get pretty long. Anyway, thanks for your support, <laughs> guys. We really do appreciate it. It, it is amazing. Even though the folks who contributed one time in the past, we get it. We've been there, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of great work being done, and it's hard to only support one project, and we thank you for it, and thank you for what y'all done for us. And I keep saying it, but honestly, it's the truth. It's amazing that people are supporting this project, and uh, we can't thank you enough. On top of this content, we've got stickers. We've got stickers available, and we're including some footage from Andy's farm putting a theory, the theory that we talk about in this podcast into practice. So if you want to see what's going on over there, check out the Patreon. And while we do enjoy making this content, there's about 20 hours of work that goes into each episode. So any support we can get to offset our actual costs, we fully and wholeheartedly appreciate. So go check us out on that Patreon. One more drop. So anyways. Should I finish this intro? <laughs> did I botch it? No, you did. 
great, actually. It's really good. There's one more thing. If this is your first episode, we highly, highly recommend going back to our first episode of the podcast and catching up since each episode springs board, springboards, I can't say that word, springboards, 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 each episode springboards, springboards, springboards off the previous content. And that's a lot of episodes right now. That's about 20. This is the 25th episode, which is wild. First off. Is it really? Yeah. Damn, son. It's not including bonus content. That's where all these goddamn gray hairs are coming from. Maybe. If you do not want to go through the entire catalog, even though it's fantastic, I recommend at least getting the first episode and probably the last episode that we just did on permaculture, because those two are probably the most important for this conversation. Uh, We also refer a little bit to our episode we did on Syria, which is, I think, about four episodes ago, so that might be worth checking out. You'll see a lot of similar themes. All of that comes back down to this very, I guess, um, focused interest on this mini series around one of the big questions I think the left has when it comes to these uh, conversations about, I don't want to say organic or regenerative or permaculture for the reasons we just discussed in the last episode, but this idea of farming without primarily massive petrochemical energy being used to um essentially inject the landscape with life over the short term at the cost of the long term. So how do we detangle this colonization from agriculture, especially when, as we just discussed in the last episode, permaculture has such a problematic past and in many ways present? We recently did that dive into that permaculture subject in the recent episode, chronicling a bit of its history and what permaculturalists believe, and a bit about the problems associated with the practice and the movement With that framed up, this series is all about ancient farming practices, more specifically you could say indigenous farming practices, not always ancient because this episode is going to be very modern. And we're going to see a lot of common threads running through these successful, sustainable farming practices. So we'll see if this all comes together. That's the plan. We don't plan that far ahead, but doing the research, it seems like it's what we envision will tie all this together in this series and hopefully it does tie together because otherwise we've spent 14 episodes or that's the plan talking about stuff that doesn't relate to each other but i don't think that's going to be the case so in our first episode of the actual content that we're doing today we really wanted to tackle this modern urban agricultural movement that took off in cuba specifically within havana even though it is in all of their major cities that stems from the collapse of the soviet union Further, our interest in starting here are thanks to uh, many of our listeners who reached out and said that they wanted to learn more about urban farming. So we figured this was a pretty good place to start. While it's probably not going to be talking about the practice of growing tomatoes in pots or anything like that, which I'm sure is probably what you meant by that, I think this bigger picture stuff is something you'll really enjoy and is really valuable to understand and I guess contextualize some of the challenges that we envision and we've even brought up about um the sustainability of urban spaces, I think you'll enjoy it. Or maybe not. I don't know. You tuned in to listen, not me. And you will listen. Listen to more. So let's talk about Cuba and specifically what led up to Cuba's need for urban farming. Since the revolution of 1959, being able to eat sufficient food has been asserted as a basic human right by the Cuban government. 
One of the ways by which the government secures access to food is a distribution system guaranteeing basic food packages at subsidized prices. When the socialist bloc disintegrated, Cuba lost access to cheap fossil fuels, our direct food imports, and the agricultural inputs on which it so heavily depended for its export production. And imports dropped in, was it 93, 94? Yeah. Uh, supplies for agriculture dropped by 67%. So all of their oil, tools, parts for tractors and buses and all of that. Everything. It dropped drastically. And, and I think it's important with this conversation to remember that at this point, Cuba experienced a lot of things that we worry about in this country when we look at places like Detroit. All it took was one specific buyer to get cut off and suddenly their economic system just shriveled up. So in a lot of ways, it wasn't really a lot different than what we experience here under capitalism, under communism, especially international communism, where you only have one or two buyers, which will be interesting because our next episode is going to be on Detroit. So we'll be talking about something very similar, but under capitalist context. And we have some we have an exciting guest, which I guess we shouldn't be talking about, but I, I'm excited. So I'm super excited. Yeah, I'll let you get back to your thing. Yeah, so Cuba was thrown into severe crisis, uh, commonly referred to as the special period in the time of peace. The crisis was further compounded by further tightening of the U.S. embargo that they had on Cuba, and food shortages occurred most severely in Havana, and it, it has been estimated that food availability declined as much as 60% between 1991 and 1995. Uh, extensive food rationing was instituted to ensure equitable distribution. So yeah, food had had to become local in every sense of the word once those imports stopped coming in for them to make their exports. So nothing was coming in anymore. So they had to, they had to do it themselves. And they, had they, had to it out. they had to localize and what's the word? Decentralize. Decentralize. What's um, the word of the day? Yay, kids. Decentralize <laughs> your government. This is a really great example of what we're interested in here, right? Um, we're primarily focused on if our food systems were to collapse, and that's exactly what happened in Cuba, what would we do about it or what are our options? And yeah. So what, what do we have the potential for? Like that's the whole point of this podcast. And like I just kind of hinted, a lot of what happened there is very likely to happen someplace like here because of the way our food system is structured that a handful of companies own all of these different industries. And in some cases, one company owns multiple of these industries, pretty much, that if something were to happen, if something were to get shut off, this is exactly what would have happened in the United States. Now, compile into that mess is the fact that uh, food is a basic right in that country, housing is a basic right, and in the United States, one in five people are uh, undernourished. So we're, we're already teetering closer to that edge while food is heavily subsidized by the government. So it, whatever happened there would probably happen worse here. Yeah, I'd agree, right? If people are, I don't know. If they're already on the edge here, then what's going to happen when there actually isn't food and it's not, there's an abundance, but people can't afford it. Food, the food prices that exist will go up, pushing out the few people that can't afford to buy it. And you'll also have the fact that there's just less food on the shelves. I think before we even get into this conversation about what their um, what they did after the Soviet bloc fell is to focus on what happened before the Soviet bloc fell. So the Cubans were not they were naive to the fact that the USSR was crumbling and they they began to plan for that as early as the early 70s. 
during this whole time, Cuba has been under some kind of blockade by the United States government, who also threatened and pushed to have other countries create a total blockade outside of the USSR. So that that was a big reason of why they relied so heavily on trade with the USSR, is that they are a small country and they needed different things. And some of those things they couldn't develop on the island. They just didn't have the raw materials. So they traded what they could, which is things they could grow quickly and easily that uh, that the USSR couldn't, like things like sugar. Tobacco. Yeah. So early on, the the Cubans spent a non-insignificant amount of their scientific prowess pushing and researching the possibility of developing better production systems that could replace a lot of those imports, understanding that they would eventually have to do this. That included agricultural production, which would make the island less dependent on imported goods. At the same time, within the Ministry of Defense and not the Ministry of Agriculture, which was committed to industrial high-input agriculture, programs were started to study potential responses to a complete cutoff of petroleum imports. So they, they knew this was coming eventually. Right, and I find it interesting that I think I made this point before when we were talking about the Zapatistas, I think it was, but how, like how these are uh, like an urban farming system, how it gets set up, and there's two things that I find in common is there's a need for it, one, and two, it takes a little bit of organization. It takes organization and like the foresight, the foresight of seeing that there's going to be a problem and we can address it now because again you can plant you know a bunch of food in a couple of years i guess but it's still going to take some farms i guess a couple of years to produce right yeah i mean you have to get the soil ready in some capacity and especially in an urban space where a lot of that soil might not be useful right so you need to build raised beds right so that takes it takes a lot of time and you need the foresight and combined with raw materials right the, those things are always prevalent, I guess, at the start of seeing something like like this. Whether yeah, you've seen it in the Zapatistas or in Rojava. Yeah, and that's so. Rojava is a really good example. But people that are interested in this stuff, you go on YouTube and you watch these videos. And I think what gets missed in a lot of these conversations is the site work that goes in before the first seed hits the ground. That's what I mean by the yeah. organization and the foresight. Like that's it's so crucial. That you do it at the right time because it can be uh, catastrophic if, if you don't. One of the things I think that's a big question for a lot of people that are thinking about being sustainable stewards of the land or whatever is you might need to clear the land and you know that's time intensive, but it's not just time intensive. It's usually resource intensive. You need a chainsaw, most cases, excavators and things like that, that might seem counterintuitive that you're using these fossil fuels to create a sustainable whatever it is, homestead, permaculture site, whatever, doesn't matter. And that might seem like it goes against the very nature of what you're trying to do. But then, you know, one of the things we talked about in the first episode is the idea of energy return on energy. How much energy did you need to invest to create more energy? And in those cases, you have to think about for a gallon of gas in my chainsaw, how much fruit will I produce over the next 10 years? How much this will I produce? How much hay will I produce? That That's an important part of that conversation is contextualizing the uh, utilization of the resources that are available today that might not be available tomorrow. You could do it by hand, but maybe by the time you're done, it's too late. And that's, I think, one of the things that is really important in that uh, planning phase that you just brought up. 
is that it's a lot more complicated than just saying, hey, let's go do this thing and six weeks later, well, it only takes 60 days for a head of lettuce to be edible. Well, okay, but what about getting ready to plant that seed? Right. Uh, is just as important. To come back to the subject matter, it was during a visit to the Armed Forces Horticultural Enterprise in December of 1987 that Raul Castro, as Minister of Defense, encouraged the introduction of a technology later largely employed by urban agriculturalists. The Cuban Revolutionary Armed Forces had carried out some successful experiments growing vegetables without using fertilizer. Castro saw what they were able to do and wanted to make it so that it was something that could be replicable anywhere, with the idea that eventually there would be these types of gardens that they had managed to develop anywhere in any city, localizing food and decentralizing the food production process. So he wanted to scale up. Yeah, he wanted to scale up. Uh, in a way that could be done quickly and with minimal state intervention, which I think is really important. So at this point in December of 87, four years before the Soviet Union fell, the so-called organoponicos, can't pronounce Spanish. I can speak Italian fine. Spanish? No. Organoponicos? Yeah. Ah, organoponicos. Yeah. Which were rectangular walled constructions, roughly about 100 feet by three feet, which were raised beds that were a mix of soil and organic material like compost, were being installed in various armed forces facilities. It wasn't until 1991 that the first civilian organoponico in Havana was put into operation in a two-acre empty lot across the street from the INRE headquarters, which is their armed forces, uh, in the Miramar district of Havana. Since then, Organoponico has become one of the mainstays of vegetable cultivation in, in Cuban urban agriculture. Thus, by the, by the time the crisis made the shift of agricultural production to cities unavoidable, Cuba had already figured out the system where they'd be able to start to respond to this challenge with the technologies and even the policies and practices that had been developed by the military for an extended period of time before the crisis even hit. So they even had like a little trial run yeah, uh, before they went full scale. Yeah, they figured out what worked and they piloted it outside of like the theory piece of it. And they said, okay, we know how to do it. How are we going to organize this? And then when it happened, they were ready to go. And it was like so timely right before she hit the fan too. Yeah, I mean, the writing must again, have been on the Again, wall. foresight. Yeah. Once they had done this, it might seem like, okay, you understand it, now you can go and plug and play. The challenge was that urban farming was pretty much non-existent in Havana. There was no need for people to grow their own food because food was distributed by the state. So even like the poorest people weren't growing food. Once this food crisis hit, President Fidel Castro proclaimed that no piece of land should be left uncultivated. So even at the Ministry of Agriculture, the front lawn was replaced with crops Every urbanized part of Havana was not exempt from trying to figure out new ways to grow food. So even if their organoponicos couldn't fit or there was no way to really make it work, it was up to the citizens to be creative and try to utilize uh, what resources were available. The goal was to decentralize production and to link production directly to the transportation and consumption patterns that already existed. So the idea was not just to find lots and spaces to use, but to also try to condense that utilization in places like near bus routes and um, major hubs of business and things like that. So everything was located in a way that was accessible to people, whether it was to, for maintenance or for consumption or whatever. 
The point was that they wanted to reduce the amount of oil being used because almost no oil was coming into the country while also maximizing the space that was in the cities. Yeah, I read a stat somewhere that said they stopped right around this time. They were using cars less and bicycles went way up because they could transport, you know, smaller amounts, less distance because it was going right down the street rather than across the city or out of the city 500 miles. What little Which fuel Cuba is not that big, but yeah, I'm talking about like the U.S. <laughs> yeah, they focused on like there, there was still fuel coming into the country. It was just significantly less, and it was being used for things like public transportation and for producing the the rural agricultural production. So, so they were still providing oil for and gas for the tractors that were working in the fields that existed far outside the city. But they, they couldn't afford to spend it on things that weren't absolutely necessary. Things like even refrigeration uh, had to be cut back. So even if you did grow a bunch of food far out in the country, getting it back to the city required refrigeration trucks and things like that. So the goal was to cut all of that out if they didn't need to use it. So across the entire city, urban gardens were started. But the challenge is, like I said, there are no urban gardens. So people didn't know how to garden that lived in the city. And that seems like, oh, yeah. People need to know how to do it. You can't just be like, hey, everyone grow food now. And they can say, okay. So then it wasn't just about giving people the resources to do it, but giving them the knowledge to do it. And this process was called production of the neighborhood for the neighborhood. Until recently, most of the agriculture in Cuba was carried out on state farms with each farm having certain production targets. However, in September of 1993, the Cuban government issued law number 142, breaking up the majority of large state farms into basic units of production called UBPCs, small collectives owned and managed by the workers. Doesn't that sound familiar? Law no. number No. Never heard of it. Me neither. Tell me about these small collectives that are owned by workers. Well, in Cuba, law number 142 aims to connect the workers to the land, encouraging a concrete feeling of responsibility and autonomy, and to make the collective of workers and their families self-sufficient, to connect income directly to the degree of productivity, and to increase autonomy of governance. In many ways, both communists and anarchists can point to this to speak to the success of anarchy. Most communists agree that the goal of communism is anarchy, as a state is eliminated when it is no longer needed. Here is one space we see this in practice. So decentralization has not meant that the government has stopped playing an active role in urban agriculture. On the contrary, for the relatively quick turnaround of the production system from chemical-based to organic-based for the success of the urban agriculture program, the strong government, national and provincial support has been decisive in addition to the strong educational base of the population. In this way, the booming urban gardening movement was supported through the world's first coordinated urban agriculture program, integrating access to the land, extension services, research and development technology, and new supply stores for small farmers. The first priority for the development of urban agriculture was to make land available for growing food. Therefore, land use and rights for the land for urban gardeners had to be secured. Emphasis was put on giving land to all those who wanted to grow food in the city, and the reorganization was led by the newly created Urban Agriculture Department. The department worked with the Poder Popular, or the Legislative Council, to change city laws so that gardeners would have legal priority for all unused space. Citizens who wanted to set up a garden could solicit the local government, usually requesting a specific plot. 
Land use rights are thus being distributed through the popular councils or the municipality. And this decentralized strategy has allowed all the land transfer to happen in a timely manner with little red tape. Even unused private land was turned over to those who wished to cultivate it. However, if the gardener would not produce for six months, all rights would be returned to the legal owner. With approximately 30% of Havana's available land coming under cultivation, the city farms and the gardens can be subdivided into five main categories. So the first is popular gardens, or grupos de pasaleros, managed by the cultivators, which are the most popular form of urban agriculture in Havana. These gardens are more or less spontaneously emerged in yards and on balconies and patios and rooftops in response to the problems of the special period. In the first few years of the crisis, almost all of the food harvested in Havana's popular gardens went directly to the families, friends, and neighbors. And by the 1990s, over 26,000 popular gardens in Havana. By the late 1990s, there were over 26,000 popular gardens in Havana that produced 25,000 tons of food each year. The stewards of these small gardens do not garden full-time, but manage the land for a desire for fresh, accessible food for the public. Many gardeners are organized into grupos de horticultores, horticultural groups, horticultural groups, voluntary organizations of gardeners working in the same neighborhood. So, the second type of urban farm falls into basic production cooperative units, or UBPCs, which I think I mentioned earlier which are the result of splitting up of the state farms. They can be found throughout the country, usually about 5 to 10 members, and depending on the available resources, the UBCs produce different kinds of products from vegetables, some dairy, and some even uh, meats and proteins. Yeah, I believe pork is really popular uh, in these types of farms, and it's one of the primary meats that's actually uh, raised in Cuba. Makes sense because, I mean, that Cubano sandwich from there's a restaurant down the street. It's got a whole bunch of pork on it. Yeah. It's really, really good. So the third farm is a CSU, a cooperative support unit, which were intended to supply the cafeterias of factories. Most of these farms are on site. And as the worker center used to have idle land, which after the crisis was made productive, most of the CSUs produce a surplus, which is sold to the workers at low state prices. They might also directly sell to the public, often from an on-site stand. The fourth model of farm is a form of individual farms. I'm going to say it in Spanish. Campesinos particulares. The typical farm size is about 10 acres or so, generally on the outskirts of the city borders. The fifth model is through the state-run agriculture enterprises. In Havana, Mixed Crop Company, Empresa de Cultivos Varios, the Metropolitan Vegetable Company, and the Animal Production Company. Very catchy. Empresa Horticola Metropolitana, Metropolitan Vegetable Company. I don't speak Spanish, by the way. This is what this it sounds like when I order at. This is really hard. Mexican restaurant. And Empresa Pecuaria, Animal Production Company. Somebody Pecuaria. help me. Somebody help me. That's probably please. how I'd pronounce it. Pequa- Pequaria. 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 Soft R. Pequaria. No, that's, that's how my people do it. So, soft, soft on the R's. I don't know how to read. Period. The mixed crop company is found on the fringe between the more urbanized and the more rural zones. And the enterprise is organized into 21 municipal farms. This produce is then distributed through the state distribution system, which again was mostly buses and 
trucks, but this is where all of their fuel was going, was to the fifth type of farm. Most of the land of the farms is dedicated to fruit production, um, amongst other things, for the tourist market. So, as we already kind of talked about, the one thing that's really unique about the urban farming movement, and as you probably noticed, the city of Havana is not like a city in the Northeast or California, in the sense that the city boundaries don't really define the outskirts of the city. Like, if you're familiar with Boston, going from Boston to Quincy doesn't really look any different, or Boston to Somerville, or, you know, any, or New York going into the boroughs, like, it really doesn't look significantly different. Whereas if you're in a southern city, like where I used to live in Charleston, if once you leave the, the peninsula, and you go out to the sticks, you're still technically in Charleston, but you feel like you're in the backwoods. Havana is very similar to that, in that technically, there is urban farming that can be 10 acres. And that urban farming can include these even larger agricultural enterprises, and still be under that umbrella of urban agriculture, which is probably not what you're thinking. But what has made Havana so uh, unique in its agricultural production are those organoponicos. These are these raised container beds, which, like we said, is a high ratio of compost. Usually about 50% is compost to um, about 50% that's either hydroponic fibers, so different cocoa and different other materials, as well as soil mixed in. These are used primarily for intensive vegetable production. They don't really use perennials or anything else for these. These systems work really well in urban settings because they can be built up quickly, and especially with hydroponic fibers, they're very light, so you can almost drop the weight of what would be a raised bed in half by using things like those hydroponic fibers. And they also retain a lot of water, so watering uh, needs are dropped. And um, also, if you are watering, the fear of overwatering drops because they can absorb a lot of that excess water without it just sitting there. So these uh, organoponicos are built as units, essentially. Like we said, they're usually about 100 feet long and 3 feet wide, or at least that's the model. Those models, each individual one is considered what uh, a UBPC. The biggest one is managed by uh, what's called the Federation of Cuban Women and employs 140 women. When possible, these replace what would be considered uh, intensive gardens because they do a lot of the same things, but more effectively. They use the same intensive gardening methods on these raised beds, but they don't need to worry about things like retaining walls and things like that because they are raised up and they're able to promote maximum plant spacing throughout the year. Because not only do they do these raised beds like raised beds, but they actually raise the soil above the bed so that the plants can actually use all the sides of the landscape. So if you're familiar with something like Hugel Mound beds, they're very similar to that, except on a smaller scale. Hugel Mound beds are usually like six, seven feet wide and usually bury a bunch of compostable material. Uh, so you'll see people put sticks and logs and leaf litter and things like that so that they break down and feed the plants over an extended period of time. They didn't do that component, but it's the same methodology. You raise up these beds that are actually built, and then you also top them with soil to the very top and above, so that they kind of crest over. And um, they kind of use what we see in the United States, what we consider lasagna beds, where they keep building up the soil so that the soil is about six inches above the edge of those uh, orgopon or the, the wherever the walkway is or whatever you're using. 
1998, the city of Havana was producing 180,000 tons of food. By 2008, that turned to 3.4 million tons of food, representing an eight-fold increase. By 2002, 35,000 acres of urban gardens produced 3.4 million tons of food. In Havana, 90% of the city's fresh produce came from local urban farms and gardens, all of which was organic. In 2003, more than 200,000 Cubans worked in the expanding urban agricultural sector, and the Cuban Ministry of Agriculture was using less than 50% of the diesel fuel it used in 1989, less than 10% of the chemical fertilizers, and less than 7% of the synthetic insecticides. Investment in education and research had provided the development of a chain of 220 biopesticide centers to provide alternatives to traditional pest control. During the same time, composted projects had taken off and 5 million tons of composted soil were generated through a network of worm farms in the country. So they made more farms to support their farms, which is yeah, they made they made soil farms right to support their food farms, which is what we're which is what I was talking about about foresight again foresight. Where are you going to get all this fresh soil from? Yeah, you're going to use the plant matter that you're you know producing or whatever waste you're using. It's going to go right back into it. Yeah, it's all about essentially creating um, the the mythical closed loop system that so many farmers try or homesteaders try to do. Like this idea that you're going to grow all your own food and you're going to use create all your own soil and blah, blah, blah. Right, Cuba was you, doing it. Right. But you look at it at scale and it turns into an economy itself. Like they were using, you know, citizens in these urban areas to manage the or be stewards to the land that they were living in, whatever block they were living on. Because, again, these are on patios and in the backyards of apartment buildings like they're everywhere. Yeah, and this kind of brings up this idea, and we've talked about it a little bit before. The trade off of efficiency for, I, I don't, the trade off of efficiency for relocalization. So when we talked about Kropotkin's in con- the conquest of bread, now I want to always say I Commonwealth of bread. Commonwealth. Yeah, you know he talks about this idea of what is work and that we don't need to work as much. And Bookchin reiterates that and talks about this idea of appropriate technology. Uh, in the utilization of technology, particularly in this kind of context of doing a trade-off, making technology more utilitarian so that we don't need these giant facilities that specialize in one thing for a very small marginal gain. And I think this is a smaller example of that, where we talk about this idea of people don't need to work as much, but the work they do needs to be more meaningful. And the benefit of that is that we can do things like localize our food which is better for the environment, even though it might be slightly less productive than growing on a factory farm, or even taking some of the ideas we're talking about in the main podcast about growing food in different ways on larger scales and saying we can scale these things up. But is that always the right thing? Should we always scale everything up if we don't have to? I guess the big question to me is, is it worth trading off or trading say working 10 hours a week and getting your food shipped in from someplace else to say you're working 10 hours a week and then 10 hours you're in a food forest, like collecting whatever, even though you're doing more work, is your life more meaningful because of your connection with your food and your respect for where it's coming from? Feels like it, maybe. 
I think so. And this is something I personally have been kind of trying to come to a position on as we've done this podcast. This is kind of the thing that's been driving in the back of my brain is like, okay, we have all this technology for free time and we can pursue what we want. And that's great in a lot of ways. But also I feel like there needs to be a dedication to continuously recognizing the ecology as the center of our everything. And I think in re- you know, it seems like we've slowly circled this conversation of being more focused on food because food is what we get from the ecology in terms of like a physical thing. Sure. A nice place to live is also yeah, nice. Yeah. But- I mean, that's that's all right. Food is the way that nature is most accessible to us, at least in modern civilization. Like you don't have to go outside your house, but you still need to eat food that came from a plant. It's the closest that people will get to nature yeah. in some instances, I'd say. And I think that's, I mean, it's sad, but it al- sad but true. But also, again, I think as we try to imagine what a better world can look like, it requires us to force people that if you gave them the option, wouldn't have an interest in going out in nature. And I think I don't, I don't know anybody that once they've spent time, not just a day or like a couple hours in the middle of summer when it's scaldering hot out. People realize how much they enjoy it, and in a lot of cases, they'll they'll go from not wanting to ever be outside to saying, I need to be outside at least a couple times a day or whatever. We don't know we need that. And I think like this question of Cuba's food systems, like it probably in terms of efficiency, having a bunch of people do these like little weird gardens here and there probably wasn't the most efficient. But even if they did create that international market again, would it be worth the trade-off of losing that? Like if they if the international market came back and started bringing them imports, like and if, stuff, if the United States would... would trade with them, just for example, like say we have this massive agricultural system, which obviously is probably more capable of producing food at a cheaper rate than whatever it costs the Cuban government to do what they're doing. Is it worth them giving up that localization of their food and their citizen connection to their food and nature, essentially for I mean, cheaper but- food? Besides the fact that it would be creating a reliance on an outside force again. Yeah, even without that. And also it would still cost, it still cost them something, right? Yeah, but I mean, it costs them something now to provide the resources for these people. True. I don't know. I don't. I think it's still more valuable for their citizens to have that connection with their food and their community. I mean, I personally think so too. Yeah. So the reason why I bring this up is not just because it is something of interest to me and like my personal navigation in these kinds of conversations. But in Cuba in particular, deforestation has always been historically a problem on the island. Pretty much since the early 20th century, Cuba has invested heavily to develop the infrastructure to grow massive monocrops. And before Fidel Castro was in power, trading with the United States, sugarcane was a, a primary concern for their economy. And when Fidel took over, that transitioned to providing uh, sugar, tobacco, and other products for the Soviet Union. Because of this, they've pretty much cleared out most of the forest. As um, the Soviet bloc fell and they've reinvested in uh, relocalizing their food, there's also been a push to reforest their country. Uh, and the program is called the Mi Programa Verde. Uh, The program includes wooded areas and grouped and individual trees found in gardens, patios, parks, school grounds, and pretty much anywhere they could think of that was not being used for food. Within the program, 86 nurseries, 
and 92 micro nurseries were established. And these are places where they do plant propagation, cloning, seeding, trialing new varietals of different spe- uh, species, all that good stuff. The initial goal was to plant 17 million fruit and timber trees by the year 2000. All of these trees that they planted had secondary benefits, so one being for some edible fruit, others being fuel for cooking or for firewood or for construction. The program has been promoted in order to increase urban biodiversity and options for different ways of producing food, as well as to encourage citizens to take personal responsibility for the reforestation of the city. People don't think of trees as being anything other than an aesthetic or maybe cleaning the air but they actually have a lot of different roles within the city, the city of wildlife, temperatures in cities. I think there was a study that came out recently that in poor neighborhoods in in any major city, the temperature is six degrees higher because of the lack of tree cover because the trees are cut down so that there can be increased surveillance. These trees play a major role, especially in a hot climate like Cuba. So all these points point to a multifaceted attempt to not just tackle both the food systems in the short term and the long term through growing these annual crops, as well as planting these fruit and nut trees that will produce long into the future, but also in the idea of investing in the ecology of the island and uh, not just in the ecology and like some big picture, like big capital E ecology, but genuine, authentic investment in the indigenous ecology of the island, which I think is really important. Right. Again, having a nice place to live. Not just planting things because they're productive, but because they're native to the island and they're valued for their uniqueness. So this was pretty much a a really multi-pronged attack to tackle a lot of the issues of the island and uh, make a, a genuine attempt to improve the quality of life for both nature and people. And uh, I don't think this is something that can really happen under capitalism. There's never going to be this kind of investment because it's probably not very profitable, despite it being better for the people and the ecology. Well, I definitely don't think with the way things are now or in the near future, the state would ever have any sort of organization in this. This would all have to be grassroots by people who care about something like this. Yeah, and that requires the infrastructure to be in place, whether that's nonprofits that already exist in that ecosystem and um, having those resources and being able to transition what might be a couple of small nonprofits into confederation of organizations that can quickly train and utilize the resources of a community to do something like this. And that's without having the state oversight that Cuba has. We talked a little bit about it. We're going to talk a little bit more about this, this idea of the Cuban government supporting what might seem like a person who's not familiar with communism, uh, the opposite of communism, giving people authority and power. How did Havana build such an impressive urban farming system so quickly? These people had never farmed before. And not only had they never farmed before, but they weren't even farming like traditional farming had been in that country. They were going to an organic farming system, even though they weren't farmers. So they had like multiple layers and a, a very large growth curve on top of the fact that many of them were quite literally starving. So the surge of urban agriculture was made possible by an impressive setup of support organizations for producers. The role of the urban agricultural department was hugely important in facilitating these changes by creating things like an extension network. This extension network was managed by over 26,000 individuals 
through vast networks of organizations, groups, and cooperatives, which were all supported by the government, as well as having some of their own people uh, involved in it themselves. Right, so the government did get involved. Each municipality has an extension team of two to seven workers, depending on the size and the number of gardens. They spend most of their time visiting the different producers in their area, and they assist the farmers in monitoring crops, identifying pests, and obtaining necessary control products for growing the plants and maintaining them. The extension workers are are also community organizers, and the extension agents work closely with other institutes involved in urban agriculture, the agricultural stores, seed houses, and agricultural research centers. In this way, the work of the different institutes complements each other. Educational workshops offered to both extension workers and city gardeners exemplify the coordination among these agencies. Havana has 26 agricultural store consultancies, um, and their role is to guarantee the technical and material viability of urban agriculture. The shops are found in urban areas and provide seed, seedlings, tree saplings, biofertilizers, and biopesticides, soil conditioners, and tools such as hose and machetes. The clients are given technical advice on agriculture, and the Ministry of Agriculture has publications that can be found in the stores. At first, the stores are run by employees of the MOA, the Ministry of Agriculture, and in the general process of decentralization, however, the employees became self-employed managers with a high degree of autonomy, and the staff of the stores are well-qualified agronomists and other staff with a substantial agricultural experience, so they didn't just hand out the jobs they gave it to the they gave the jobs to the people who were qualified to do them always important well it, it seems like in this way it just seems like it's common sense where the right person falls into place rather than just any joe anybody yeah i mean i guess what you could say is the state provided the framework for those people to have those skills and to have the infrastructure in place and then the state pulled back a little bit and handed off the authority and autonomy to the people that were already doing the job. They just gave them the framework to be able to do the job. Instead of more, more bureaucracy and sending a pencil pusher in, they yeah. said the farmers are running the farm because- Yeah, who would they, think that farmers running farms would be a good idea? Right. So they had 11, ooh, this, is, Crees, this is a fun one. C-R-E-E's, no, I want to say it. Okay. Cent- Centros de Producción de Entomophagos- E entomopathogenos, so Cree, as we call is it, and in, in, what is that? Bugs and stuff and pathogens. Uh, yeah, probably something like that. Fumigants and pathogens. Yeah. Wow, that is a mouthful. So anyway, these there are eleven centers, uh, Cree centers that provide biopesticide services to all the producers. The centers produce and supply biopesticides to the producers through the previously mentioned agricultural stores. It also should be noted that the curriculum of agricultural colleges has been adapted to the transformation of the agricultural sector, ensuring qualified researchers for the future to continue research and development of urban agriculture. The Urban Agriculture Department has been working with these institutes to determine how they can best serve the needs of the city farmer. For example, for historic reasons, there is a serious lack of diversity in seeds and crops, like the fact that there is only one kind of melon and one kind of squash available in Cuba. 
This lack of diversity has been addressed by the popular gardens, and many rare crops are being brought back. This has been largely due to local seed saving, which allows the cultivation of locally adapted crops and varieties that are suited to the particular conditions of a site. And this urban agricultural department has also offered a series of workshops for urban gardeners and extensionists on seed selection and saving. So like this sounds like heaven to me. Like I would love to like live where people are just like, hey, you want to do a workshop on how to do this thing you enjoy? Yes. Yes, I do. So they invested heavily and people became quite passionate about it, which is always important. And they also invested in their future by making sure that people are staying up to date with information and the knowledge they need to know in order to continue and grow their farms and also like increase efficiency, productivity, and just make it, I guess, overall better. Just keep making things better. Yeah. So what's the end result here? Um, I've read this like a million times and I've fact checked it at like literally like six times because it doesn't seem right. But the sources that we're going to have cited for this podcast episode say that Havana has been able to produce 40 pounds of produce per square foot a year, which is absolutely bonkers. Like that can't be right. And I've checked it. So it, I'm going to go with it because that's what it says. Um, this is absolutely insane. And I've never heard of anywhere that's even close to that. So I'm a little bit suspicious. I understand they have a longer growing season because it's always warm there. And uh, that provides for things that we can't do here in New England. I would say most places, a, a productive farm is producing like five or six pounds per square foot. So that's why that number just seems insane. But uh, we're going to we're going to go with it just for now. So if if this is accurate. Uh, it gives us a very interesting idea of what is possible. So for theory's sake, let's just take a look at Boston, one of the cities with the least green space per citizen in America, which um, has about 168 square feet of green space per citizens in the city. If you were to convert half of that to urban gardens and produce at half the rate of Cuba, the city would produce about 29.1 million pounds of vegetables or about 42 pounds per person which is about 10% of the annual vegetable consumption per person per year. And we talked about the differences between the northern cities and generally the southern cities and the western cities. In a city like Atlanta, which has almost 10 times the amount of green space per person, plus an extended growing season, it's highly likely all fresh vegetables could be grown within the city limits, which is awesome. To contextualize this further, let's look at food security here in the United States. According to the USDA in 2019, 10.5% of U.S. households experienced food insecurity at some point during this year, 2019. 2020 was probably like through the roof. This number accounts for approximately 34.5 million people. Tragically, best predictors of food insecurity in households is by identifying families that are headed by single women with children. 28.7% of these households experienced food insecurity at some point during the year. I want to underscore this data with what it really means. It's one of those really innocuous terms that floats around in public space, which is ambiguous to most folks. When we talk about this idea of food insecurity, what we're really talking about is the ability to buy food that is not chosen as a meal because of its price. So when you say food insecure, it means they literally are buying the only thing they can afford. In reality, 
This is a large piece of why certain industries are subsidized so heavily here in the United States. Processed foods that can store for long periods of time are ideal candidates for subsidy because it offers cheap year-round access to calories, which keep people alive, even if that doesn't mean keeping people healthy. This means high-calorie, low-quality foods make up a large portion of the diet of poorer folks here in the United States because it's all they can afford. If we think about this from a farming perspective, it's the equivalent of fertilizer. Sure, it'll keep everything alive, but sooner or later, you're going to pay for it. And it's a large reason why we have such poor health, even compared to a small blockaded country like Cuba. Within the context of this podcast, Elliot's shaking his head at me. No, I'm, I'm shaking my head at, at those facts. That's just it's fucked. That blows my mind. Yeah. So within the context of this podcast, it's important for us to ask the question that if things are this bad at any given time in terms of food insecurity, how bad can it get? If we were to look at any sort of collapse scenario, we can look to two events in our recent history. Between 2001 and 2007, food insecurity in the U.S., range from around 107 to 11.9%. However, in 2008, when the Great Recession took place, this number jumped to 14.6. It wasn't until 2017, nine years later, that food insecurity returned to its pre-recession levels. According to Feed America's October 2020 brief, the projected annual food insecurity rate was set to hit 15.6 by the end of the year. So like I said before, this year is blowing it out of the park. It's still doing that. For the child population, this number is 23.1%. For context, Vietnam has a food insecurity rate of 14.9. So our American food insecurity right now is worse than what would be considered a developing country like Vietnam. But as you guys know, food insecurity isn't something that's completely equal across the country. Jefferson County, Mississippi, was projected to be the most food insecure county in the United States in 2020, with 36.8% of its population facing food insecurity at some point during the year. In 2009, Jefferson County had the highest percentage of African Americans of any county. It's the fourth poorest county in the nation. For context, again, Nepal is actually more food secure than Jefferson County at 31.8%. That's fucked. I'm still shaking my head. I don't. I, I. I don't even know what to comment like on. Like, where do you even start? And, this. and that brings up the question of if this happened in the United States, how much worse can it really get? There'd be a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, we're we're so close to the edge as it is, and the system's pretty fragile. Yeah, so. as we saw the second people raided the grocery stores. I don't know about you, but every time I go, the shelves still aren't full. There's usually stuff, but it's like if you're going to get a can of tomatoes, there's like four cans, not the whole row like it used to be, but like four cans. So you can see that the system still hasn't really caught up yet. Yeah, it's still crawling back. And so, that's with like production still happening. Right. It never stopped. It's just, I mean, for those of you listening that also listened to our episode on the Syrian civil war, we raised the question of whether or not it could happen here. And uh, Syria's food insecurity today hovers around 53% in 2020. However, when Bashar al-Assad took power in 2000, data suggests that food insecurity, due to the extensive subsidies in place to make food affordable, was comparable to Western Europe, which, along with the United States, takes up most of the top 10 countries in, in secu food security. 
So if you're curious to know how Syria went from a growing country with a strong middle class to a collection of various militias strung together by borders, go check out that episode. It's pretty fun. I wouldn't say fun, it's but not, it's, it's interesting. I, it's not fun. It's eerie. Let's say that. It, there's a lot of similarities. And here's one more that we didn't talk about in that episode. Yeah, it's, that's kind of true. Good episode. The point here is that the system collapse can't happen, and it can't happen particularly when food systems become centralized, relying on petrochemicals, and when that food is exported out of the country for high sales and cheaper products are brought back in. This was the same case for Cuba when the Soviet Union collapsed, and while the United States is the largest exporter of food in the world, it is right in the middle of the pack as far as food imports go. So the anomaly here is that as an exporter, it's not even close. We double the second largest food producer, which is Germany. So how this would actually play out in a collapse scenario is obviously hard to predict, and we're probably wholly unqualified, if not just kind of obsessed in some weird way. What complicates things further is the fact that so much of what we do grow is animal fodder, which is totally useless for human consumption. And the other half is that the grains we grow are processed and stored for indefinite periods of time. There is a lot we could talk about here, but I don't really want to go too far down that road right now. The challenge in American agriculture really stems from its reliance on gas, equipment, and massive supply chains. When we compare it to Cuba, the benefit of Cuba was that they were able to organize change dramatically, forcing its citizens to change their methods of transportation, creating an intensive public infrastructure system to reduce individual car usage, investing heavily in bicycles, and replacing smaller equipment with animals to work fields and move equipment, the limited amount of fuel received went towards necessary things, buses, tractors, and so on. I'm not sure if the infrastructure here could be changed so quickly, nor are suburbs designed for these changes, despite the fact I think suburbs may be our greatest weapon in combating climate change and creating resilient, autonomous communities. Call back to Catherine Tumber, Small Green Green. Yeah. One more time. There are roughly 63,000 square miles of grass being grown for aesthetics in the United States today. Even if this land was put to use to grow crops, even inefficiently, let's say half a pound a square foot, which is the average estimate of small mixed gardens from Rutgers Extension School, doing this would produce 840 billion pounds of food. Let's give it the benefit of the doubt and say that half of it stays under cover crops, keeping the soil healthier. Let's even say that half of it really isn't good for growing crops, for some reason or another. Even then, at 420 pounds of vegetables per person, which is what we eat on average right now, replacing all grass with produce would generate enough food to feed 500 million people. That's right, 500 million, which is more than the U.S. population. And then some, yeah. Yeah. So in a country this size, that's usually the case. People always say, like, look at Cuba. Are, are, are when we take Cuba as an example, like we're doing tonight, they'll say, yeah, but that's a small island. It's nowhere near the size of the U.S. We do have the infrastructure in place. We just have to think about um, how we can use it to its potential and see if we could actually possibly get results like this, because that sounds pretty cool. Don't sleep on the suburbs, I'm telling you. I mean, the prob- there's a lot of problems with trying to use the suburbs, but I personally think it's going to be our salvation. It's going to be the thing that saves us if something saves us. Well, it's got the space. We have the space. has the space. It's already been cleared. It has good topsoil. In a lot of cases, it's already irrigated. Yep. The biggest challenge for a lot of people is using green space near roads that are dumping pollutants. 
and assuming a collapse scenario, then there's probably a lot less pollutants getting dumped. So problem solved. So hopefully you've enjoyed this episode and feel inspired by what the people of Cuba have accomplished. I know I am. And what can be done even in our own country. And if you enjoyed this episode, please, if you use iTunes, give us a review. These reviews are crucial in our growth as we rank higher in searches, have better data to point from for prospective guests, and allow us to continue to prove that what we are doing is valuable. We have continued to grow faster than we would have expected, and that's all to the work that you find folks do. And once you've done it, given us a review, every time you hear this at the end of the episode, you can rest easy knowing that you've contributed and helped to continue this podcast's growth. Further, it's an opportunity to give feedback on where we can improve. So if you've already given a review, thank you. And for those of you that are about to, we appreciate it. And as always, this is Andy. This is Elliot. This is the Poor Pearls Almanac.